0: Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take the message that, that you have given me that I believe is a right now rhema word message for our church and that you would rest upon my words. God, that you'd speak to the hearts and the spirits of everyone listening now in the moment and those that will listen on the replay or on the podcast. And I pray according to your word that your word will accomplish everything that you are sending it to accomplish. All that's in your heart today, in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Do we have any treasure hunters in the room? I didn't think so. It's a real thing, though. There are there are people who that is their their occupation. What they do is they treasure hunt. There was a, a treasure re, like fairly recently called. Um, Fenn's treasure is it did anybody hear about this Fenn's treasure so there's a, a gentleman by the name of Forrest Fenn who was a multi-millionaire he was an art dealer and an artifact collector and he lived in Santa Fe and in 2010 he he filled a treasure chest filled with all kinds of treasures and artifacts and he hid it somewhere in the Rocky Mountains and then he wrote he wrote his own autobiography and in the midst of his autobiography he wrote a 24-line poem that if you could decipher the poem, it would lead you to where his treasure is, and it was called Fen's treasure. It was estimated that 350,000 people took time to look for Fen's treasure. There were some that quit their jobs; they dropped out of school; they they, they devoted their entire time to finding this treasure. It was even reported that there were four people that lost their lives roaming through the Rocky Mountains looking for this treasure. One man was, was trying to decipher the treasure and he's, he's following his map and he literally walked off the edge of a cliff trying to find fence treasure. And here's the thing. Nobody actually knew if it was real or if the guy was just, you know, some kind of an eccentric millionaire who did this all just for his own joy. They didn't know if it was real And if it was real, nobody knew what was in the treasure chest. They just knew it was a multimillionaire that hid it. So there was so much unknowns about this treasure. In 2020, a man by the name of Jack Steph found Fenn's treasure. He was a 32-year-old medical student. And after he found it, and he actually wanted to remain anonymous, he remained anonymous for a few years, um... But when, when his identity came out, he actually said, you know, I was a little embarrassed of the obsession that, that this treasure became in my life, how much time and energy that I devoted to trying to find this treasure. He actually, um, he ended up selling the treasure in a a private deal and the, the, the amount that it was sold for wasn't disclosed, but the guy who bought it turned around and he, he auctioned it off and he auctioned it off and it was sold for 1.3 million dollars that's not a lot of money. If you really think about it for, for people to quit their jobs and devote everything they have to finding this treasure. I mean, it's a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, $1.3 million isn't what it used to be. Right. But isn't, if, if I'm not mistaken, isn't the average home in San Diego right around a million dollars, you know, so it's, it's not really all that much. Today I want us to, uh, if you got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 13. And then I also want you to stick your finger to Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. And we're going to read a, a, a really short story that Jesus tells about a treasure. And then you can also turn to Luke chapter 14. And we'll get to Luke chapter 14 a little bit later. But um, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44 says, the kingdom of heaven is like a very precious treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid again. And then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field, securing the treasure for himself. So there, there, there are two possible um, interpretations of what Jesus is trying to communicate in this very short story. And both of them, I believe, are applicable. Both of them are... are um, um, Not only possible, but probable, because there's many things in the Bible that have dual meaning to them. And so we're going to look at both of these uh, interpretations of this story, because they both um, are accurate, yet, and they speak um, complementary, but yet different truths to us. And I believe that if we allow the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts today, and we take hold of what Jesus is communicating to us, that it will change and impact how we live our lives on the daily Not just the overarching grand scheme of our lives, but daily how we live our lives. The first interpretation is that Jesus is the man and that we are the treasure. John 3.16, most of us have probably heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The love of God for you and I for all of humanity, for all time, for every individual person was so great that Jesus, the very Son of God, God Himself, left the throne room of heaven. He wrapped Himself in humanity's skin and came to earth so that we could have a way to be with Him forever. And this was not like an afterthought. This wasn't a response to something that happened in the Garden of Eden. This was always the original plan. Before the beginning of creation, it actually says in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, that Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, it says, was slain before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Before creation was ever created, in the spirit realm, Jesus was slain to take away the sins and the error of all humanity. See, God knew because he's all-knowing. There's nothing that God doesn't know. There's nothing that ever happens that takes God by surprise. He knew that the pinnacle of creation, you and I, humanity, would rebel against him. The ones made in his image would break relationship with him by doing the very things that he said not to do. Not so that he could control us, but because he knew these things would lead to our pain destruction and eventual death. And so he says, these are the things that I don't want you to do. For Adam and Eve, it was eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, But it didn't stop there because what Adam and Eve did in rebelling against God set in motion something that, that altered the rest of humanity from that moment on. What they passed down to all of humanity, you and I, now live with, and along with everyone who has ever lived, we have all turned away from God. We've all turned our back on Him. We have all rebelled against Him, and we have lived outside of what He has called good. We were separated from God because that's what happens when you live outside, and you do things outside of His boundaries, of what He says is good, what He says is right and wrong. We are separated from Him. We're separated from the one that loves us the most. And there was no way for us to get back. There was no way on our own to get back into relationship with him. So he came. He came, he came for us. He came for me. He came for you. He came for the ones that, that were trying to get back to him. He came for the ones that had no interest in him. The ones that, that hated him. He came for them because he loved them. And he loves us the most. He came to make a way, and the way that was needed is life. See, it's life for life. When you, when you live outside of what God says is good, what God says is right, when you w- live outside of that, you rebel against Him, the requirement to come back into relationship is life for life, which creates this, this catch-22, because if you give your life to get back into relationship with Him, you can't get back in because you're dead. And so Jesus came, and He lived this perfect life with no error, no sin. He always lived inside of what God said was right and was good. He offered his life in my place, his life in your place. His death on the, this, is, this is his death on the cross, and this is what, what Paul says about it. He says, he who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, was sinless, became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. The man, Jesus, he found a treasure, a very precious treasure and priceless treasure and then he gave all that he had to buy the field so that he could have the treasure. You and I are his treasure. The all he had was his life. He gave it all. He held nothing back. Jesus looked at you and he said, you're worth it. You're worth the pain. You're worth the agony. You're worth the discomfort. You are worth my life. You are worth it because you are my priceless, prized treasure. Renee's mom has an expression that she has said to our kids from the moment they were born. If Josiah and Faith were here today and I asked them, what's the one thing that Grandma Alma has said to you for your entire life, without hesitation, they would say this, this. you are my treasure. This is the one thing that Grandma Alma has said to them from the moment they were born. I have memories of her rocking our children in the rocking chair back and forth, back and forth, telling them, you are my treasure. And then when our kids got a little bit older and we would go and visit, before we left, she would look at them. And she would say, you are my treasure. And even as they get, they're older now and they're young adults, when they call and when they FaceTime, she still tells them, you are my treasure. For their entire life, this statement has just been declared over them over and over again. You know, we need a fresh revelation of how much God loves us and how he sees us. Because you are Jesus' treasure. I think like, what, what happens is we hear, we hear things so often that they, they lose their meaning. They lose the depth to them, right? Like we, I mean, I couldn't even possibly begin to tell you how many times I have heard God loves you or Jesus loves me or Jesus loves you. Like you hear it over and over and over again. We hear it so much that it has lost the depth of meaning to us it's become familiar. I, I know, I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure. I absolutely 100% know that there were times in Josiah's and Faith's life that they were like overhearing, you are my treasure. And it, the, the meaning lost, its, its, it, it just lost it on them. They were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, grandma, bye. Right. But now as they're young adults, I know the impact it has made on them. And how it has actually shifted the relationship between them. And what that, what that now, as an 18-year-old and, and almost 22, what that means to them, they, they, they actually treasure that statement knowing that their grandmother treasures them. Who's heard of the saying, apple, apple of the eye? I mean, it's, kind of, it's kind of a common saying. We don't hear it a lot. But the phrase is actually found a few times in the Bible. In Deuteronomy, Moses begins to sing this this, uh, spontaneous prophetic song and he begins to say that the Israelite nation is the apple of God's eye. Then the the, the prophet Zechariah says that the one who touches God's people touches the apple of his eye. David prays in Psalms chapter 17, verse eight. He says, God, keep me as the apple of the eye and hide me in the shadow of your wings. Renee, can you come here for a minute? So we understand this phrase, apple of the eye, to mean or refer to something or someone that is valued above everything else. But what, this is actually, it's, it's a Hebrew expression that we've, that we've taken, and it literally means little man of the eye. And what it refers to is this. It refers to the reflection that you see in the eye of somebody when you take the time to lock eyes with them and you gaze into their eyes, you can see your own reflection. And it literally means little man of the eye in Hebrew. See, when we take the time and we lock eyes with Jesus, we stare into his eyes. We see our reflection. He sees his reflection. And there's nothing else that even matters in that moment. All of the stuff fades away. And this is what he wants. It's just to lock eyes with us. Corey Russell, who who, who teaches often on prayer, and when he, he talks about prayer, he says, We're like, we're like toddlers. We're like that two-year-old toddler in the in the prayer room. You know, like like Ozzy, yeah, how hard is it to get Ozzy just to focus in on something, right? Like when they're that little, it's just like, it's impossible. You're like holding them and they're, they're doing this, they're doing this, they're doing this. And he said, this is what God wants. This is what he's after. That moment where just for five seconds, he focuses in and there's nothing else happens. And we focus in and we lock eyes with him. And in that moment, we feel his love and we feel his affection. And we know that we are his prized possession." That's how God looks at you. That's how he sees you. And there was nothing that he held back in pursuing you and making a way for you. When he found the treasure in the field, he gave it all to buy the field so that he could have the treasure for himself. You, (laughs) he does not want to share you with anything or anyone. Then there's the reverse interpretation. Where Jesus is the treasure, and you and I were the man. Jesus is so valuable, so priceless. He is matchless in every way. That when we find him, and I I really I say that find him so loosely, because we don't ever find Jesus. It's a statement that we say, Well, I, I found Jesus. We didn't find him. He found us, and then we realized that he was there, and he's always been there. We just come to this realization that he's there. But we know when, so when we find him, we realize who he is. We realize that what he's done for us, that there's nothing that we don't give to have him. We hold nothing back because nothing matches the worth of Jesus. Nothing. You think of the story. So the man finds a treasure in the field, he hides it again, and then he goes off and he sells everything to buy the field. Listen, selling everything to buy a useless piece of land looks absolutely crazy. It's irrational. It's foolish if you don't know the treasure is there. Or if you know the treasure is there, but you don't understand the value and the worth of the treasure. They just I know it's a made-up story, but think of the comments. And the whispers and the side glances and the out loud, very loud objections to what the man was doing, selling everything, selling everything, his house, his animals, his tools, his vineyard, his fields with crops that were growing, maybe ready to be harvested. He's selling it all. He sells it all. He liquidates everything, leaving it with nothing but the clothes on his back. Imagine what people would have said to him as they know he's buying that piece of field. There's, there's nothing on that land. It's full of weeds. It's full of rocks. It's not, there's no crops on it. It's not even ready to be used. It's going to take so much work. It's not worth what you're doing, but he liquidates it all. But no one sees the treasure. This guy is giving it all to buy the land, a useless piece of land. Because common natural wisdom tells us, whoa, 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 don't put all your eggs in one basket. Because what happens if you drop the basket, then all the eggs are broken. Even in, even in investment, the, you know, like wise investment strategy says diversify your portfolio. Don't put all of your investment into one thing, because if that goes south, then you've lost it all, right? Diversification. So you, you diversify your portfolio and you maximize your potential positive outcomes. That's Wisdom. That's natural wisdom. But here's this guy is risking everything for one thing that nobody sees as valuable. That's why it's for sale. Even today, when people see someone giving everything to have something that they look at as useless, they label it. It's called extremism. They call it foolish. They call it narrow-minded. I want to tell you today, nobody cares if you go to church. Friends, family members, neighbors, they don't care if you go to church. Nobody cares if you call yourself a Christian. That's great. Give it all for Jesus, though. They're going to have some thoughts and opinions about that. Right? Like, if you really go all in, if you sell everything, you give it all for him, you hold nothing back, but you give your entire life for him. I'm going to tell you now, people are going to have an opinion about that. And they won't keep their opinions to themselves because that's not what, <laughs> nobody has an opinion that they keep to themselves. Like, that's what opinions are for. We share them. Well, let's just let me tell you what I think about what you're doing there. So when I, when I first gave my life to Jesus, I'd been a Christian about maybe just a couple months, maybe a couple months. I went all in then. I, I, I gave it all for Jesus. I remember one night I was sleeping on, I was, I was in my apartment. I was sleeping on the couch and a friend of mine, one of my, one of my best friends broke into my apartment as I'm sleeping on the couch and he sits on me as I'm sleeping on the couch. I'm, I'm fast asleep. And the next thing I know, boom, I'm like, I'm someone sitting on me. So I'm startled, but I can't get up. Right. And so I'm like, I'm pinned to the couch and startled awake, wondering what on earth is going on. And this is not only is he sitting on me and terrifies me as as I wake up, but he's got his finger in my face. And so he's, he's pointing his finger in my face and he starts yelling at me. He's telling me I'm wasting my life and I'm throwing my life away following Jesus. Only a couple months ago. I was called a religious extremist by a relative that was looking to dismiss something that I said to them over 20 years ago. What did I say to elicit the religious extremist label? Jesus is the only way. The only way to salvation, the only way to eternity with God, and apart from Him, we all face a lost eternity in hell. Religious extremist. See, nobody cares if you go to church. Nobody cares if you call yourself a Christian, but you start telling people that Jesus is the only way. People do not, and they will not understand when they see you giving everything to follow Jesus. They're not going to get it. But that's okay. It's not for them you don't live your life to please them honestly who cares what they think but then there's people see there's another group of people that they do know Jesus they have met him they've received salvation but they haven't bought the field they know the treasure's there but they haven't bought the field these are those that they, they, they haven't gone all in problem is is that they don't understand the value of the treasure or they doubt the worth that it's is is it worth me giving everything to is he really worth it so what they do is they 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 sell a couple things well i'll sell a couple things that like man this is important to me so i'm going to sell this this one thing and that that way i can i can have myself a little bit of jesus I can, I can let him in my life because I, I sold that, that little thing. And I'm like, okay, gee, now, now I've got Jesus. I've got, I, have, I have a little bit of Jesus. I have a, you know, a, a little encounter with him. Okay, I've, I've experienced salvation, but that's as far as they go because they don't understand his value. Or they don't, they don't actually know, is, is it going to be worth it in the end? So they settle for a nice sermon on a Sunday. They settle for a good worship time, but they never go any deeper than that. They never take the things that happens when we gather together as a church family. They don't take those things and they don't, they don't take them, and they don't go deeper. They don't, they don't take what happens and they apply it to their life and allow it to really work in them, allow it to change them. They just sit. And, that was good. How was church today? It was good. How was worship? It was good. So next week, it's the same. See, maybe they, they, might get, they might get a little touch from heaven here and there, but we hold back from giving Everything, giving all of ourselves in total surrender. Every thought, every decision, every motive, every action, every ambition, every goal, every hope. We hold back. We don't really live for him when we hold back giving it all. But what we don't realize is that this is what he requires. He requires us to give it all. He's... Jesus is, is not looking just to touch your life. He's not looking just to visit you. He's looking to rest on you. He's looking to make his home in you. He doesn't like, we've said, we've said this before. He doesn't want much. He wants it all. Like he really is looking for all of it. In the old Testament, it says, it says he is a jealous God. His name is actually jealous. And he is an all-consuming fire. You don't just get singed or or burnt by the fire of God. It is all-consuming. This is what his desire is, to consume you completely. And he requires total surrender. And our prayer, actually this has been my prayer over the last several months, God, bend me and break me. Bend my life around your ways. Bend my life around your word. Don't allow me to bend the word around my life. Don't allow me to to bend you and fit you into my schedule and my timeline. but, But God, bend my life around you. And what doesn't bend in my life? Break. This has to be our prayer. Bend me and break me. So I can be fully surrendered. So I can hold nothing back but give absolutely everything to and for Jesus. But many, many people don't want to hear this. They don't want to talk about this because it's uncomfortable. And it challenges our comfortable Christianity. And the, the surrender, it's, it's not like it's just a, okay, I, I did that once. I surrendered once. <laughs> this is an ongoing thing because in a moment you're, you can cry out and really feel and believe, yes, I have surrendered everything. And then he will find something else in your life that you haven't surrendered. And he's, he's going to ask you to surrender more. And you're like, Jesus, this, this hurts though. This is difficult. You got your finger in Luke 14. We're going we're to read at, uh, starting at verse 25. It says, as massive crowds followed Jesus, he turned to them and said, When you follow me as my disciple, you must put aside your father, your mother, your wife, your sisters, your brothers. It will even seem as though you hate your own life. This is the price you'll pay to be considered one of my followers. Anyone who comes to me must be willing to share my cross and experience it as his own, or he cannot be considered my disciple. So don't follow me without considering what it will cost you. For who would construct a house before sitting down to estimate the cost to complete it? Otherwise, he may lay the foundation and not be able to finish, and the neighbors will ridicule and laugh, saying, Look at him. He started to build, but he couldn't complete it. Have you ever heard of a commander who goes out to war without first sitting down with strategic planning to determine the strength of his army to win the war against a stronger opponent? If he knows he doesn't stand a chance of winning the war, the wise commander will send out delegates to ask for the terms of peace. Likewise, Unless you surrender all to me, giving up all you possess, you cannot be one of my disciples. There's three things Jesus says here that we must do or we cannot be his disciple. And listen, (laughs) those are his words. They're not mine. He says, this is what it has to look like or you cannot be considered one of my followers. Number one is Jesus must have the first, the preeminent place in our lives. There can be no other relationship that can ever come close in comparison. It's Jesus first and then everyone. Everyone after. If that's not the love priority of my life, then I cannot. I am not one of his disciples. It can't just be something we say. It has to be something we live. Peter Drucker, who is like a, a, a management guru, wise management guy. He said this, and this is about business. Tell me what you value and I might believe you, but show me your calendar and your bank statement. And I'll tell you, I'll show you what you really value. You can tell me that you're a follower of Jesus and that you've given your life to him. And yes, I am a disciple of of Christ. You can tell me that and I'll believe you. But if you show me your calendar, you show me the appointments in your life, the things that you said, this is in my calendar. This doesn't change. This is a non-negotiable and then you show me your bank statement, and you show me where and how you spend your money, then I will tell you whether or not you really are a follower of Christ. I will show you what you really value. I will show you what is the most valuable thing in your life. Number two, be willing to suffer for Him. This is a really rah-rah message today, isn't it? (laughs) To feel good. Pick up your cross and follow Him. The cross, see, we've, we've reduced it to pretty crosses. They're pretty white crosses, silver, gold crosses that we hang around our necks. They're on the, it's, we've got a pretty white one on the top of our church. It's actually framed in neon, although the neon doesn't work anymore, but it's up there. And they're pretty. But you see, the cross was an instrument of torturous death it was designed to create the maximum amount of pain as someone suffered and suffocated to death. That's actually how you died on the cross. You suffocated. I won't go into the science of it, but, but, but what Jesus is telling us is that we must be able to endure whatever comes our way as we follow Him. Now, For some, this is actually literal physical death. It's physical pain. Actually, the the heroes of the faith are the ones that give it, have given it all, and they are. There are untold millions throughout throughout history who have given their lives because they are Christ followers and refused to renounce Him. They are the heroes. But for some, probably for most of us, if not all of us, it's not going to require a physical thing, but you will be verbally persecuted. They will talk about you behind your back. They will spread rumors about you. They will yell in your face. You can absolutely guarantee that the suffering will be of your appetites and your desires and your dreams and your goals as they bend to conform to the will of Jesus in your life. As we conform every aspect of our lives to Him and His revelation through the Bible. To put it bluntly, it doesn't matter if I agree or like what the Bible says or instructs. It doesn't matter if I like it or agree with it. It's truth. We bend and we break. The Bible in Jesus does not. The third thing that Jesus says that we have to do is surrender all. In the original language that Jesus was speaking, it was says, giving up that to me, he says you must, you must give up all of your possessions. It meant to renounce, to forsake, to abandon, to literally turn away from and walk the other way. And possessions literally means substance. Right? It's, it's who we are as a person. It's not, it's not really like limit. It's not limited to like my house, my car, my, my bicycle, like all that stuff that we own, but it's, it's us as substance, who I am. Me as a person, it's my life, my body, my thoughts, my intentions, it's my actions, my words, my aspirations. This is what he wants. See, Jesus is not saying that his disciples must sell all their belongings and live as poor homeless people. But he is saying that we have to abandon all that we are and offer up all that we have to follow him. If you don't know the value of the treasure that is Jesus, this is a lot. You're probably sitting here thinking, who does this? If we have not seen Or experience the worth of Jesus. Chances are, we'll never do these things. We'll just continue to dabble a little bit in church attendance, and we'll we'll stick our toes in the stream of the living water, swirl our feet around a little bit. Well, that was nice. That was refreshing. I like that. My prayer it's, it's, it's oh, honestly almost kept me awake over the last few days. My prayer, as I thought about today, was God, let them see the value of Jesus. Let them see the worth of Jesus. So if you walk away with that, anything else that I've said, it doesn't matter if you just catch the worth of the treasure. Because when you know the treasure, when you understand the value and the pricelessness of Jesus and what he's done for you and I, then what he's asking for is not that big a deal. It's not really a big ask because we receive far more than we will ever give up. Even if we're called and asked to give up the ultimate, our lives, we still receive more on the other side in eternity than anything we could ever give up here. But he doesn't just limit it to that because there's verses where Jesus says, I will give more. in the kingdom of heaven and on earth for those who have left homes and family and such as these to follow me. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. The Fen treasure caused a stir and there were many people that gave a lot to try and obtain it and a few gave it all. But only one person found the treasure. Everyone else was left with nothing. That's not the treasure that is Jesus. He's available for everyone. He's available for all. And it was only 1.3 million that this gentleman found. But what, would, what, would, what do you think people would give if they knew guaranteed they could have a $1 billion treasure? If you just pay attention to the news and to court cases, you'll understand. People will give pretty much anything to get their hands on that kind of, Of value there's nothing that people wouldn't sacrifice to get their hands on a billion dollars that doesn't compare to the treasure that is Jesus it's beyond value and he's calling us to give it all so that we can have him because there's really no partial treasure there's really there's no going half in if you want to be his disciple it's all or nothing Those are his words. They're not mine. But listen, I'm not saying, I want to make sure that we catch this. I'm not saying that it's, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about discipleship because salvation is free, but discipleship is costly. I can tell you this, that if you decide not to give it your all, and the choice is always yours then I think, in my opinion, chances are you will end up being a frustrated, unsatisfied, unfulfilled church attender. Always feeling like you're missing something, trying to find something to fill that spot. Receiving salvation through Jesus, but not giving everything so that you can have the treasure, is like going to downtown Disney. You go to downtown Disney. You can kind of, you can have a little Disney experience, right? The music is playing. You, there's, you know, some of the decorations are out, and you can do a little bit of shopping. You can get a meal, and you're, you're kind of, you're, you're there, right? But you're gonna have to sell it all if you want to get in the park. You're gonna have to give it all. Listen, don't go and, don't get in the park and ride the train all day. You know the train that just goes around the exterior of Disneyland, around and around and around? You're still kind of there. You're in the park, but you're just watching everybody else have the experiences and experiencing it all. That's what it looks like to receive salvation but not go all in. You just watch everyone else have the fun, and you're kind of like, I don't know, I'm kind of here. But if you and I could look into the eyes of Jesus, there would be no denying his word. So I want us to stand and this is my invitation today. Risk it all. Everything you are, everything you've ever been given, risk it for Jesus. Lock eyes with him. Feel his love for you, his affection for you. Stop holding back. Come I'm, I'm inviting us today to pursue Jesus with everything that we have, everything that we are, abandoning everything else. And I, here to tell you Jesus is worth it. And if you're not sure if he's worth it, then this is my challenge to you. Ask him to show you. As we sing this song, just ask him, Jesus, show me your worth. I want to see you because I, I know if you see him, then you know he's worth it. He's worth it. So we're going to sing that song, Lock Eyes with you. And I'm going to come back and I'll close in a moment. But I challenge you to ask him to show you his worth.